Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members at Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Hugh J, Paul M, Andy S, and Sean M. Brand new guest on the show today, longtime uranium business and sector veteran Jim Cornell has joined us. Jim is the president of Nucor Energy, a private nuclear fuel consultancy that spans the fuel cycle. Nucor has existing relationships with Traxxas Worldwide and uranium producers such as UR Energy. You can learn more about Jim and the company via its website, nucorenergy.com, or by emailing him, jcornell at nucorenergy.com. Jim, welcome. How are you? Thanks a lot, Andrew, and thank you for the introduction. It was very nice. Well, uh, good to chat. Uh, we have so much to chat about, but I don't think we're going to be able to cover it in one program, but it's uh, great to have you on finally. You know, one of the things I want to do here just for the audience, because I think you're under known in this sector, at least from the investor side and most of them anyway, talk about uh, your experience in this sector and maybe just kick us off with your story, just how you got interested in this sector and then maybe just walk us through some of the highlights, good and bad times, uh, cocktails, et cetera, throughout your career. Sure. Um, I graduated from uh, Cornell uh, University Business School in 78 and went to, uh, actually went into the, the tax advisory field working for what was then uh, Ernst & Young. Uh, it was dreadfully boring uh, and uh, uh, a friend of mine uh, from, from uh, undergraduate school at Wesleyan University rescued me from that. and. Um, at the time, the coal uh, industry was undergoing a tremendous uh, renaissance as a result of the um, oil crisis. And so I went, I became a coal trader and um, I did that for about uh, nine years. At one point that, you know, the, the industry flip-flopped and was on, uh, there's almost all, there was no, the trading companies were disappearing. So I looked for another commodity to apply my experience and talent to and sort of came upon uh, the uranium industry. And at that time it was, um, this is back in 1987, the trading, it, it was almost non-existent in the industry. There was some, uh, the people, and they were trading enrichment services and that was about it. And I was brought on by a, co a company called Newcam to um, develop a trading capability and uh, enjoyed a tremendous amount of success in, in that. I was with Newcam for about 25 years and was uh, president and CEO of the company for 12. And during that time, the company went from a fairly, fairly modest uh, uranium brokerage or uh, business to the largest uh, uranium trading company and uh, globally, we were doing um, revenues up between 750 and a billion dollars and EBITDA between 100 and 200 billion for almost um, uh, you know, a 12 to 15 year period. Um, you know, the company was sold in 2008 to Advent International. Ultimately, it was acquired by Cameco. But by that time, I had left the company and I uh, had started up with uh, Nucor Energy, which is I'm um, still uh, working with today. 
the Nucor Energy was originally established uh, as a portfolio company of a private equity firm, Caden Energy Partners. Um, we, uh, at the time, we, I, was, I ended up managing an $80 million portfolio for them, and uh, we were investing in uranium equities. Um, a lot of the juniors that are still, uh, you know, still up and running today, a lot of the exp uh, exploration companies. Uh, we also tried to acquire UPC at the time. Um, we were attempted to start our own fund, so I have a lot of fund experience. And then um, after Fukushima, I focused pretty much uh, all of my attention on doing marketing and other advisory work in, in, in terms of financing and also M&A work for Year Energy. And um, I would work with very closely with Traxxas uh, as an advisor on broadening uh, their supply base. Traxxas is one of the largest trading, uranium trading companies in the, in the space right now. And your energy um, was one of their more, you know, the lowest cost and one of very successful producer for a number of years until the market declined uh, within like say three or four years ago. You know, that brings me up to today. Um, and I'm still advising both of those companies and we're looking for opportunities to, um, to take uh, advantage of this, um, you know, recent improvement in, in the entire sector. Jim, is it safe to say that you know just about every component of this industry, fuel buyers to the trading side, government relations and policy side? I know you have a view on nuclear power, but, you know, all the way down to bringing material out of the ground with the miners. Did I miss anything? You pretty much covered uh, it all. We, you know, we've, I've been involved with the trading, not only uranium, um, but conversion services, uh, enrichment services, um, a, a secondary supply. We, we, um, the biggest, uh, you know, Newchem was the, the largest um, uh, acquirer and, and reseller of, of uh, secondary supply and, and coming from areas such as Kazakhstan. Uh, we participated in the um, Russian-U.S. HEU deal was responsible for converting 22,000 Russian nuclear missiles into uh, civilian fuel for U.S. reactors. I've been across the board. I've dealt. I've been in selling to every single utility in the world, and familiar with just about every mining and exploration company. Take us back to. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you give us your view of this uranium business today? You know, certainly on the uranium side, the supply side. You know, talk about where we are today, and where do you think we are in this trend? Well, I, we, we, what we've experienced over the last several years has been um, a reduction in production. You've seen the Kazakhs have um, uh, cut back significantly. Um, Cameco, of course, shut down the Gartha River. Then, of course, there was the increased reductions as a result of um, the pandemic. We see the mines, uh, the Arana mine shut down in Niger. In Namibia, um, you know, Palinin has shut down. Australia, ERA shut down. You know, as a result of the um, the reserves finally running out. But you know, so you, what you've seen is a you know reduction in supply, and at the same time, and and you see a reduction in uh, underfe underfeeding, which was generated by excess enrichment capacity. Uh, 
up till several years, up till a year ago, um, was generating about 24 million pounds of uranium. And that was all being sold into the spot market at, at, uh, at really, um, which it was, a, was a clearing cost of, it's well below market. And that's drying up because enrichment prices have, have increased. And also we've seen, um, you know, R Russia that, um, which was a major exporter and you know, supplier of uranium, uh, they're becoming uh, transitioning toward being a net buyer uh, as a result of their very robust reactor build program internationally. So uh, those are the dynamics that have been affecting the market. We see at the, at the same time that there's um, going on with that reduction in demand. You have this recent development where investors are uh, willing to uh, you know, fund companies who are going out and purchasing uranium. Now, just to put that in perspective, uh, the only company that I can recall, that only production company or exploration company that went out and purchased uranium speculatively in the past was Paladin. Um, and that was probably somewhere in 2005. They had a bad experience, and um, that was that didn't last long. They invested ten million dollars in uranium, and then the prices shifted, and they ended that that sort of business initiative. But recently, this year, we've seen you know number of companies going out and purchasing uh, you know companies that aren't even in, aren't even production company like Denison buying two and a half million pounds on the market, Boss Resources. Um, in addition, you know, Cameco has always been buying uranium uh, to meet their contractual needs, but this new this new buying activity is, is pretty is pretty unique. And that is um, further reduced the amount of available material that can be sold on the spot market. So you know all of this activity and then of course you have yellow cake buying uh, and uh, you know up to a million pounds of Kazakh production per year. Uh, they've already developed, you know, built an inventory of 13 million pounds consisting exclusively of Kazakh E308. So all, all of this material that could, you know, the, the combination of material being pulled off the market um, through purchases, you have um, underfeeding declining at a very high rate from 24 million down below 10 million per year, and also mine closures. Um, you know, the combination of those has uh, resulted in, you know, a situ situation that I don't think anybody could have foreseen a year ago. It's a perfect storm. Lots of different components here that you mentioned. We've seen the juniors come out and some of them, of course, come out and buy some material for future delivery. You have UPC being rebranded with Sprott. The physical funds are ramping up somewhat. The buying efforts, such as Yellow Cake, as you mentioned, they exercised their 2021 option. I'm still scratching my head why they didn't use their 2020 option, Jim. Maybe you have some views on that, but I've struggled to see why they didn't make that action with problem. My suspicion is, is there was probably a gentleman's agreement on that front not to do that. We have a lot of good things going on, but I want to go back to just a moment to secondary supply, specifically underfeeding, a largely a survival technique for the enrichers, while, of course, the services side dried up post-Fukushima. What's your expectation of underfeeding, say, over the next five years? Will it remain to be below 10 million, below 5 million? 
what's your thought process on that as the cycle gets underway? It's it's highly dependent on enrichment prices, and those prices, you know, there there's a new contracting cycle in enrichment. It usually lasts about 10 years, and as some of these new contracts come up, they, you know, these enrichers can't supply enrichment from new um, equipment for $50 a swoop. Um, they're just they're just um, you know able to su- supply you know at those levels from from a legacy production, and so a lot of them, you know, that you've seen over the years is the you only have three enrichment companies, the primary ones, Arano, Urenco, and Ten and Tenex Rose Adam, and you know at the time they they've not been replacing equipment, they've been just using existing equipment, and when that you know when it's no longer operable, they they shut it down. The centrifuge technology allows you to sort of separate, you know, to isolate equipment that's no longer uh, viable from the from the rest of of the equipment. So it, it's really very, it's been very easy for them to sort of move gradually toward um, adjusting their production to to what the actual demand is. And um, what's what we've seen here is that as, as a result, there's very there's less and less enrichment available just to produce uranium. Uh, they've done, you know, they've been able to improve the economics of, of the of the entire enrichment process to the point where it's going to, you know, there's there's no there's less and less of a need to, to produce uranium, and that's going to that's why it's gone down pretty significantly. I think there'll still be through the end of this decade, there will continue to be uh, uranium generated from underfeeding, but it will probably be in the range of you know, five to eight million pounds per year, and um, and and so I that's and that's that's a major uh, shift because if I, I think the low pricing that we've seen over the last three years um, has been you know, pretty much a result of Underfeeding because they have they don't really have any their costs are variable and they can essentially be economic at at at, at any price level Sim, similar to say a BHP um, which is producing uranium as a byproduct. So when the swoop price declined, it was simply a matter of survival. Everybody who has enrichment capacity is going to turn around and just create and sell it into the market. See, with, with enrichment, usually enrichment is sold under what they call requirement contracts. So as long as a, as a power plant is operating, they are obligated to take delivery of the enrichment service. In the case of Japan, almost all of the enrichment contracts were that type of requirement contract, whereas that wasn't the case, though, for uranium and for conversion. So immediately when those reactors were shut down in Japan, the enrichment producers had nowhere to go. I mean, there was no way they could find another a customer um, because it's, as, like I said earlier, there's a very long contracting cycle and there's almost, the, the spot market for enrichment is minuscule relative to uranium. Uh, or. Uh, and conversion is a little, it's also very, is, is not very robust either. 
but say it was you have so they had no spot market outlet and the only thing they could do to keep those centrifuges running which if you shut them down you can never restart them is they can they generated uh, uranium with them and so that led to a flood of extremely low cost uranium onto the market and really severely depressed prices yep exactly that's important to point out we're not going to spend any money here you can see the result lack of capital even to this day very little capital going back into this particular portion of the fuel cycle and so until we get I'm not sure what price they need. You know probably better than I do, but you said 50 is not enough. So for swoop prices, do they need $100 to start buying new equipment and commissioning that, which I'm sure is a multi-year process? What's your thoughts on when they start to capitalize with more equipment? You know, it used to be where they would, you know, they needed over, uh, you know, $100 per swoop to justify, you know, adding new capacity. So uh, I don't, one thing is they might, you know, replacement, um, I, I think they're less, you know, most of them, uh, when they, like, for instance, when Urenco, which started out with a very small capacity, I mean, maybe a couple of, mil it's two, three million swoop per year and built it up to 15 per million per year, you know, they did it only, but they did, they would not add new capacity unless there was a contract that would support it. So I, right. I think there's going to be, you know, and, and they're talking not a three-year contract, a five-year contract, but a, at least a minimum of 10 years. And um, so I don't, I don't see additional capacity coming on until prices get up near that, you know, $100 level. Yeah. Certainty with contracts, high market prices, a beautiful setup for an investor who's looking to enter into this sector. So come back for a moment and, and let's go back to that time period of the early 2000s. I was too stupid to look at the uranium sector back then, but you were there. Talk about the thought process and what you were doing at that time. And you were looking at the market. You were doing more than just trading uranium, but you were also involved with looking at equities, analysis of equities, et cetera. When did you think that things were starting to become unraveled? in the sector? Was it when you saw the uranium price, you know, come up to that 130 plus level? You know, when did you see that it was starting to get where a lot of production was coming on, mines were getting financed? And don't talk about Fukushima yet, but did anything come up at that point for you that said, you know, this is uh, starting to look like it's uh, overheated? Well, yeah, it would happen just to go, uh, the early 2000s was, was not a very promising period for nuclear. At that time, um, there was the issues that the utilities were dealing with in the U.S. were stranded costs. How to how they would deal with with that and, and writing off you know huge investments that that um, they really were you know that needed to be funded somehow. And the other um, and the other thing was plant life extension. Um, the, the plant at that time it was you had. Absent plant life extension, most of the plants in the country would have shut down by 2015. And um, the first uh, plant, the first company, uh, the first plant that went up for for um, applied for plant life extension was Vermont Yankee, and um, they withdrew their application. And then there was the Monticello plant in, out in uh, Wisconsin, and they withdrew their application. So people started thinking, "Whoa, this is." This is not, a, you know, this industry is looks like it's going to be over before, it, you know, before before long. Um, and then what happened was there was all of these utilities started at, um, 
improving their operations significantly. I mean, going from capacity factors of somewhere 70%, 65%, up above 90. And, and I think that operational success really contributed to a major turnaround in the industry. And um, it's that started and that spread throughout the world. All you know, operationally reactive performance went uh, reached its peak. I think after um, I say in the after 2005 to 2011. Um, I mean, we saw at that time the Koreans were projecting to double the number of the Japanese were going to go from 54 reactors up to 100. I mean, it was the the, the promise for nuclear at that time was was just mind-boggling for anybody who'd been in the industry for any length of time. And of course, China was was projected to go to a you know 125 to 150 gigs in uh, by 2030. So, you know, we, we were looking at an extremely optimistic scenario. And that's when there was something like, I think, 500 combination of junior mining companies, exploration developers. Um, it, was, it was just, uh, it was a true renaissance. And of course, with, uh, you know, Fukushima, you, you have then, you know, that whole renaissance unraveled. There's just lots of pieces to it here. And I know the no one would have ever thought that things like megatons to megawatts plus a high price environment plus Fukushima would derail what has happened here. That, of course, has set up what we have before us today. Talk about for a moment the behavior, for example, today, maybe in your experience, because you've got to see this, whereas a lot of people, at least some of the people on the investor side, these people weren't even investors in the early 2000s and not necessarily in the industry, but certainly on the investment, the capital side, haven't gone through this cycle before. But is there any difference in behavior, Jim, today at the fuel cycle level and also at the utility level? Is there any difference in behavior, Jim, or is it more or less the same type of behavior? Um I think the biggest changes that have taken place are the decline in, in secondary supply. That's been happening, you know, you know, it's been very gradual. Like you said, the megatons to megawatts deal was responsible for about 24 million pounds a year. That was replaced, of course, by this underfeeding, which almost, you know, matched it. But now that underfeeding's, you know, coming to and drawing to a close, um, you know, there's that, you know, that's, that, that's been one development. The, on the utility sector, you know, there was a tremendous amount of consolidation. You know, there was uh, so many uh, companies that, that you have um, Northeast Utilities. It was Boston, uh, New, you know, New England Power. There was Portland Gas and Electric. There was San Diego Power. I mean, it was, there was uh, in Texas, there were two utilities. There was... There was such there's so much consolidation that's taken place. So now there's there's probably you know six major U.S. utilities and then you know several smaller ones, and that's been a big change. Which was which also was a big change was the, the development of uh, deregulation of the power markets. And now half of the the you know when I first started, all of the um, utilities were regulated, and they all you know, were, were uh, um, had to apply for rate increases and everything. All the fuel that they purchased could be passed through to the ratepayers. Um, 
and then over over time, the uh, in the in the early two thousands, you had the development of you know merchant plans where they had to stand on their own, and um, you know half of the U.S. fleet now is you know merchant plans, which are very vulnerable to be uh, to with the um, you know ups and downs of the of the power markets. That's really changed the 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 economics of them. So the Companies like Duke, which are fully regulated, um, they they don't you know they don't, they don't have to worry about their fuel costs as much or the economics because they can pass this off to the ratepayer. But then a lot of, you have a company like Exelon, which a lot of their units are merchant plants. They they have to achieve the lowest cost possible, and and that that affects their buying decisions uh, and practices. They they can't afford to they have to go and and um, you know, seek out the lowest cost possible to keep those plants uh, operating. So that's that's been you know a, a trend that um, you know developed in the uh, like I say early 2000s and has really shaped the industry quite a bit today. Um, you know, there's we still have the same. Well, there were more converters. Um, there was BNFL in England. They shut down their conversion plant. Uh, and here in the U.S., we had another conversion plant, uh, Kerr McGee. And they they consolidated with Allied Signal, and now you have an Allied Signal was acquired by Honeywell. So now you have one plant, and um, that plant was almost uh, shut down permanently. Thank goodness uh, for the Iranian market that they're planning to reopen in 2023. Because if you didn't, you would have uh, essentially the Iranian market would would be would alter significantly. It would have it would turn into just a natural U.S. six market. So you know that's happened. We've seen you know the consol enrichment consolidation, Uranco and Arano. They they really they're using the same technology. They've had you know only enriched here in the U.S. It's shut down pretty much permanently. I know that Centris is trying to revive the centrifuge, but on a very limited level. So you know we lost a major. Uh, you had the U.S. Enrichment Corp. Uh, that was supplier of enrichment services and. You know, that was the end of the phase out of gaseous diffusion technology and replacement with centrifuge technology. You see them with, in mining where you've gone from um, uh, you know, open pit deep mines to uh, now I, pretty much uh, ISR is, uh, is, is, is ex uh, pretty much the, the most the exclusive um, mining te technique except where you'd have uh, areas in Saskatchewan where there's very high grades. So you you know these have been you know that's and that's because you've had to have you know the lowest cost possible. And um, you know those you know those are the trends that, that have, have been have developed and continue on till today. And I think that's um, it's like st these streams that continue and and go off and branch off and and but it's it's really been you know, I say we that the whole industry has changed significantly since I've been in it. Jim, the lead time is so important to point out to the audience. Metropolis 2023 SMR fuel cycle procurement. Where we want to start the plant 2027. What do we do in 2023 2024? I think that's important for people to realize the lead time in the sector, and it goes both ways. I want to take a break from uranium for a second. I want to go to the, the broader nuclear energy side of things for a moment. First off, I'd like to get your view on nuclear power 
and how nuclear power is a solution to climate change. Should you see that that's a substantial issue, I'd like to hear that. And then also, I'd like to know from you, what country is leading the nuclear charge? Is it China? Is it Russia? The turnkey programs? Where does the U.S. fall in here? What does the U.S. need to do? I know that's a lot, but take it away. You know, I absolutely, um, I, you know, I think global warming uh, is certainly an issue, but it's, it's, it's not, uh, I think there's a lot of global warming hysteria, but I think what nuclear's contribution is, is, you know, carbon free and, and electricity generation. And to the extent that, you know, carbon is, is a pollutant, I think it's important to minimize it. And half of our, uh, our, our carbon free electricity in this country is generated by nuclear. And, all, and importantly, nuclear has a very small footprint per kilowatt. I mean, it's the nuclear power plants are very compact, unlike the, your, the requirements for wind power and, and especially solar panels, solar power, which requires a tremendous amount of land area. You know, people are fixated on, you know, this the older technology because these plants uh, we see in the U.S., they're, they're, they have operating licenses go for 60 or 80 years. The French are looking to do the same thing. So these plants have a much longer life than anybody envisioned when they were first built. And so we're relying on very old technology and light water reactor technology. And yet in between that period of time, there's been major improvements that really are not recognized by the, um, the power generating uh, community. And really well, a lot of this technology is being deployed though is, uh, is Japan and, and Russia. So they're building, the, you know, the, China's building what the you know, generation four um, and looking for the generation five, you know, essentially, you know, plants that are going to be meltdown proof and almost, you know, fully automated. And they're providing so much support for nuclear that they're going to take, naturally take the leadership role in which technology is, is adopted which one will, will ultimately be deployed throughout the world because both China and Russia are driven, they're, some of their, you know, their biggest export items are nuclear power plants. Um, and I think we, a lot of people don't pay much attention to that, but both of, if you take the case right now of Argentina, they're in dialogue with China and now Russia is coming into that dialogue to acquire a new nuclear power plants and also a you know, power plant, you know, nuclear power that's plants that are deployed on barges. Now, the U.S. isn't in that dialogue. We've sort of lost our leadership role. I know we watch this, you know, they talk about it, but in terms of any type of a, a substantive um, development, there, there none, I don't, you know, see where anyone, anything exists. I mean, you have Russia going into Turkey, which is a NATO ally and building nuclear power plants. Um, they're building them. Um, they're they're off, also they're they're operating, they're doing it under operating and, and sales arrangement where they produce the power and, and sell the power to, to onto the grid themselves and take the risk of operating it. Um, you have the Russians building uh, looking at building in Egypt. They're building in Bangladesh. The Chinese are in Pakistan. You know the Russians are building in, in India. They're building in China. We've really seen that this is this is you know the future of nuclear is really um, in, the, in the hands of Russia and China, and you know unfortunately for us we might end up buying uh, you know uh, 
you know, a future nuclear power plant from one of those countries. Business is open, I would say that. And these countries you mentioned is just the starting, it's the first step to some degree because you have a lot of other countries who will certainly entertain mid-size, you know, conventional nuclear, SMR. The maritime application is mostly ran by Russia for the most part. They're icebreakers and they're floating plants. It's an interesting state of affairs, and you and I have talked in the past. It's going to require some capital if the U.S. wants to come back into this. I think that they have the capability to do so, but they need to lead. And to lead, you need some smart people at the top to understand that energy is a huge importance, national security importance, um, strategic importance. We know that Russia likes to use these vehicles for control, you know, command and conquer type setups maybe don't own anything but control everything type thought process. It needs to be challenged, and the U.S. still has that capability, but it's going to require some serious capital and some people to uh, to come in and manage that and handle it. Quite frankly, now is a fantastic time to do so. Let's go back to traders for a moment. You've got a lot of experience in this part of the sector with your relationship with Traxxas. Talk about the importance of traders in this marketplace and of course, traders as a very heavy importance for those companies who may develop a mine that may not get a contract, but may have quantities sufficient to use traders to uh, take care of their books. What's your thoughts on traders' impact on this market? Well, you know, traders, unfortunately, there's you know the object of scorn from a lot of members of the, the community because they don't understand what traders, uh, what benefit they provide. Mostly, it's it's a, a logistic and financing function. You know, the mining company. Um, you know, the nature of the of contracting for to um, supply uranium. You know, is one where you you can't really control the delivery dates because that's something that really uh, your customer want, is insisting on controlling. They want to they want to take delivery when they need it at the place that they need it. So there's a number of, uranium is delivered to conversion facilities. There's one in France, and there's one in the US, and there's one in Canada. So there's three places where you can deliver your uranium. And when anybody with, when either a trader or a producer contracts with a utility, that utility has the right to declare the delivery date and the delivery location that they would expect to get, you know, the, the, the product. Now for a mining company, especially a smaller one, and I'm not talking about the Cameco's of the world or BHP's, but I'm talking about a company that would have production of say a million to 2 million pounds. It's very expensive for them to maintain inventories at all three locations that would allow them to meet those delivery requirements. Also, most of them require funding and can't afford, don't have the banking relationships that permit them to be able to uh, wait several months to get paid. And, and you know, if they're producing material evenly through the year and the deliveries all take place in the third or fourth quarter, you know, they're, they, they have a you know, significant funding requirement. And that's where, that's where a trading company comes in. A trading company can, can provide uh, financing for them. Um, they can take delivery of that in the first quarter and then deliver that 
to the utility in the third or fourth quarter because they're set up, usually have fairly large lines of credit at attractive rates. They also um, uh, are able to swap uranium around. They have enough relationships where they can move uranium just via swapping from, say, a Convertine to an Arano facility or to up to Cameco. So the you know the basic function of of a trader is to create a market, an immediate market for a producer, and and also handle uh, be able to. Uh, address those logistics requirements that uh, would otherwise be prohibitively expensive for a smaller mining company. And that's the role that they've traditionally played. They've done that also with, you know, bringing uh, secondary supply into the market when, um, you know, smoothing out the delivery of, of that secondary supply, providing a market for it. Um, that also has been very critical. So, They've been a, a very uh, important player in the market uh, since the say in 1980s. I appreciate you pointing that out because I think that there's a, a good chunk of audience that probably didn't know all of those features and components, and that's uh, you know important to point out that uh, they serve an important component in this market, both on the bull side and on the bear side. Maybe this is a good time to switch over here for just a sec. Let's move to the majors, the ones who have those credit lines, the ones who have those finances, the ones that can do these things with maybe without traders. You've got a reduction. You know, you've seen Rio, you've seen BHP generally exit this sector for now, Jim. And maybe you can speak to them for a second here and maybe what their thought process will be and others when the uranium price is much higher. But you've seen them exit. You've got mostly... Kazataprom, Cameco, Uranium One. What, what have they done right? And I know you're certainly familiar with Kazataprom and Cameco, but what have they done right over the last 10 years? And where do you think they've gone astray? Well, Kazataprom, when it's interesting, that Newchem was the we engaged with the former Soviet Union republics right after the breakup. We had been doing a significant amount of business with. Um, um, with the you know Russians, with the Soviets before that breakup, but afterward, we went in and essentially um, established um, supply relationships on an exclusive basis with with all of the stands: Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. Um, and so I, I was involved. I, I spent 15 years working closely with the Kazakhs. And saw them, you know, grow from you know a company that could was challenged to to meet its contractual obligations to literally, you know, a, a, you know the number one uranium producer in the world, and um, and they and they've done, you know, they've they've done a you know a fantastic job. You know, they're they're blessed with with uh, the best deposits in the world. Um, they're all ISR amenable. They've shut down any of their high-cost operations, um, so that they've done. I, you know, and and they what they did early on was they decided to go out and create. I call it the United Nations of Uranium, where they set up joint ventures um, with with most of the major players in the market, not not the utilities, but with um, Japanese trading firms, with Cameco, with Milano. They are also with the Chinese, you know, 
those joint ventures served them very well. It provided them with capital that they didn't have um, and expertise, mining expertise that they didn't have. And they, so they, they've done a really extraordinary job. And I think it would, they would be, you know, surprised that if someone had said to me that in 2000 that the Kazakhs would be producing you know, 58 million pounds in 2021, I, I would have said, you're crazy. Um, but they, they really managed to, to do that. They have total market power. I mean, they're the largest producer. They're the Saudi Arabia of the market. They set up this yellow cake. They supported yellow cake on the very favorable terms um, in order to try to take pressure off the market when they had excess supply. Um, they wanted to generate a price of $70. They could do that tomorrow. But, but if, they, if they could get the cooperation of their partners, because they can, they have the, uh, that marginal production that um, and they can turn it off and on very very easily as, as we've seen with their response to COVID. Cameco, I think they, they were smart to get in and uh, they acquired Uranerts, uh, which was their partner, their German partner who had already stake in Kazakhstan. Um, John Borshoff was, was with Uranerts at the time. He was uh, one of their, you know, their, 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 their chief mine operator. Um, also, we ran its own um, big share of the other Cameco projects. So Cameco did a smart thing by buying out Uranus, especially in, in the assets they had that were the lowest cost, cost production. I, I would say, you know, they've had to respond to the market uh, weakness by doing the right thing. They, they cut back, you know, they shut down MacArthur River. You know, their production now, their, their total share of production is it's, it's been cut in half, so they're doing. They've been doing everything they possibly can to bring supply and and, and demand to balance. Of course, they have to be careful because the you know the Kazakhs are they're very happy to ex expand and take over market share that anybody else has decided to give up. And you know they they we know that they could increase production significantly if they want to. So I think Cameco's would probably have kept the guard like down for a longer period of time in order to get market fundamentals back in balance sooner. But um, they've got to be careful that they don't concede market share to to uh, Kaz Adam Prom. Um, Uranium One that was a you know that was a, you know a, a, one of their the smartest investment that they made was in Kazakhstan and you know that's helping to support the fuel commitments they've made as a result of their reactor sales throughout the world because when they sell a reactor they sell fuel for the life of the plant so having that uh you know their their uranium production in russia is pretty high cost uh, and and having access to 11 12 million pounds of kazakh uranium allows them to be competitive with part of their reactor sales package so uh, those are, you know, the, the, the bigger producers, you know, right now, except BHP, of course, has been in a very preferred position. Their, their costs are probably the lowest in the industry because they're, they're a byproduct of, the, of their copper production. And, um, and I think that, you know, one thing, they, in the past, of course, they were looking at expanding um, Olympic Dam and bringing uranium production potentially up to 20 million pounds a year. I, I think it's fortunate for the rest of the mining community that that has not happened. That's not going to happen because, you know, they, they, that's that's a lot of, of uranium, low-cost low uranium that could would make its way onto the spot market. So 
it's pop that's another that's a positive effect for the for the uranium market is that decision not to expand the Olympic dam. Jim, I think you covered most of it. I, you hit the bulk of it, but yeah, you're right. You know, Olympic Dam. Look, let's uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. The copper price, I suspect, will go substantially higher from here. It's possible we could see double-digit copper before this is over. So they'll throw that back on the table. Of course you would. With that kind of copper price, you can do a lot. But the expansion time is going to be a long period. So that's a part that people need to calculate into their figures. With Rio and uh, ERA, you know, when the uranium price is at a higher price, let's just assume 80 bucks a pound, $100 a pound, whatever, the projects at Ranger and also Jabaluka probably gain some attraction yet again. When those times come, I think that that's a lot's already happened really well for the sector. You know, with regards to Cameco, I'd like to pick on Cameco, but because that a prompt too, like you mentioned, the capitalization into the new projects, into the pipeline. That hasn't happened even with Kazataprom. We know that they can, they'll get the capital in the future to do this. But right now, both Kazataprom and Cameco haven't capitalized any type of expansion and pipeline building for their depletion. Now we know that there's care and maintenance and such things that have delayed that. But, you know, one of the things that we've pointed out is, you know, Cameco, for example, has seven to 10 years of runway in their existing projects and they need to perform M&A and work on their pipeline. And Kazataprom too, to some degree, needs to, you know, capitalize a number of things as well if they're going to continue to be a, a force because they're in decline mode as well. And so I think a follow-up on what you just said is that yeah, I think most, a lot of people are not aware of the fact that cigar at, at current production levels of 18 to 20 million pounds a year, it will, will run out of, of resource in seven, 10 years. Um, and you're right there, what is, what is going to replace that? Um, and certainly if you look at what Cameco, what they took to develop cigar, I don't know if it was 30 years, I mean, it, and they ran into, they ran into some, you know, two you know, flooding on two occasions. Um, the cost there, even though they're, cash costs might be you know very low if you took their all-in costs for the 30 years of development and all they have to be you know, I don't know 50 to 70 dollars a pound um, if they really did if they if they included all all of the legacy costs that were involved in developing that project and, right. and in Kazakhstan you know having I you know we, we've evaluated a lot of the properties there over the years and um, you know the the true cost there. They, they both Cameco and Kaz Adam Prom need forty five dollar price to can to justify production. They they you know they can get by with this market of thirty, but they they this is they are not going to be able to um, invest. I don't I don't think they would and I don't think they should invest in in, in new production until those until they can get it at least that price and that's pretty that, they both said that publicly cat had a problem everybody looks at their very low cash costs and their replacement costs they when you take in what it the, the cost that they what they account for which is you know community costs ta government taxes things like that same thing they you they they need 45 dollars to justify you know their production so 
And they're also, they've been high grading uh, for years. They're going to be running out of low cost uranium probably by you know, 2027, 20, between 25 and 28. Uh, and they're going to have to tap into those much deeper deposits and the pumping costs are much more expensive. Um, it's going to, their, their cost will go up significantly. Um, they've acknowledged that they're high grading and that they're just doing that to continue to support, you know, pay off debt and support their, their local communities that you know, were set up to support the mining activity. So I, I think this, we're, we're heading in that direction. And I think when the market's more, becomes more aware of the fact that we will, this low cost uranium is, is, is quickly drying up both on the secondary market level and the primary market level. I, I think that's when you, that's when prices will experience that real lift. And it's just a matter of getting it to that point. If you had half a billion dollars, would buying uranium at current prices, $27, $25, $33, given what you know in this sector, would it matter to you to accumulate at this point? Would I think it's a good idea? Or is Absolutely. Do you think it's a good idea to buy, not split hairs, but to buy at these current levels? Oh, yeah, this is a bargain. Yeah, you know, I think. I mean, everybody, uh, you know, you should be loading the boat at a price level like this because you have to look at who can produce at thirty dollars. I mean, that's that's why. I mean, I was. You, you see the thinking behind all of the uh, junior miners and explorers buying uranium is that they know what their costs are. They know that there's no way they can produce at thirty dollars, so they figured, well, buy it, <laughs> and because they know at some point that the market is going to have to increase in order to support, you know, actually bringing mines on. And they'll, they'll be sitting there with uranium and making a, a pretty, you know, hefty profit on it. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very smart thing. And I think to the, the extent that, you know, companies can continue to attract funding to pursue additional uh, uranium acquisitions, uh, I, would, I would think you would continue to do it until you, you uh, weren't able to raise any more money. It's a, it's really a smart thing to do. Absolutely, fully agreed. And we'll see what Sprott and UPC does here as far as can retail investors buy those units and force them to continue to buy uranium. That's going to be an interesting setup if they can structure that correctly. How about this? What makes a good uranium mining business, Jim? Is it people? Absolutely. Well, I think it's. You know, your deposit, your capex and operating costs, starting with the deposit that is amenable to ISR, where it has the lowest capex possible and flexibility, of course, would have the low, you know, very lowest operating costs. I think that's, and I think that's the function of your personnel, people there who can identify those deposits and know how to extract the uranium at the lowest cost possible and to also bring these capital projects on in on budget and and work their way through the the whole the regulatory challenges that the mining community face you know that people don't realize how long it takes to permit these mines and what uh, you know the regulatory maze that you you have to negotiate through so it's it's the, the it's those those unsung heroes there that you know your geologists your operations people Guys who understand the chemistry, you know, they have this, these guys who 
to understand what's going on underground and, to, uh, and without having having the possibility of actually seeing it. You know, those guys are really what uh, those those people are, would make or break a company. And, and you know, they often not mentioned in, in these um, PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Just in recent experience, the only junior company, and this is not in uranium, but multi-billion dollar projects, is I have to highlight Ivanhoe Mines, two projects, South Africa and uh, the DRC, copper and PGMs, both projects that require billion plus capex, they're being advanced at the same time. So we'll give some credit to those folks. But when you go back and you look at this, let's use Cameco, for example, you know, we've seen Cameco do MacArthur and Cigar. These projects were generally advanced and constructed mostly during prior management. Now, let me couple that with a large CapEx like NextGen, a large CapEx like Vision. There's not too many other deposits I can think of globally from a publicly listed company standpoint that qualify for billion plus CapEx. What do you think? These big projects that require billion plus CapEx, can these management teams deliver on that? Well, it's they're certainly facing a, a pretty serious challenge. I mean, the reason I mentioned earlier why, you know, you're looking for a project that has a small capex. And you know, I we've disclosed that I have been advising your energy for 10 years, and um, the traction of that, they could build a processing plant and set up well fields for at that time for you know 80 million dollars. Um, and expansion is is only going to cost them between 10 and 20 million. It's easy. We went out and got contracts to support that new build and got a favorable financing package from the state of Wyoming, but based upon the contracts that we entered into with U.S. utilities. And I think that's generally how these projects are financed. Um, it's going to be hard just to do it 100% with equity. You're going to have to have a debt component and the, the debt, if you, you know, these banks don't want to secure the debt with a, with a mining project that uh, they they don't you know that they don't wouldn't know what to do with if it if it was foreclosed. So they want they're looking they want to look toward a consumer that's willing to pay a price that's going to guarantee a return and most importantly the repayment of the loan. So when you look at a billion dollar project, there would be contracting effort that would be required to support that capex is huge. I mean I, it's daunting. You'd have to go out and find utilities who are willing to make a 10-year commitment to fund to allow that you know that company to go out and raise you know significant amount of debt. That's why I've I've leaned toward companies that have you know a modest capex uh, that doesn't require you know 10-year take-or-pay contract because I think utilities are going to be a little reluctant to to do that. I mean they they I think their their first uh, that you know their preference would be to go to a say a five-year contract with someone at a certain a certain a modest volume so they they're not putting all their eggs in one basket so we'll, we'll see but i i think that you know next gen and, and fission have quite a challenge ahead i purposely don't include denison there because of the capex of those projects is substantially less but yeah you bring up a lot of points the time frames not to say that those 
equities don't rise in this market. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, you know, can you get to that level of actually financing it first and actually getting into commissioning and actually delivering cake in a can, which is a whole other challenge in itself. So then, of course, there's the M&A component you and I touched on earlier. At what point uh, is there pipeline building being done in this sector to replenish depletion? New companies who are looking to build a company, build a mining company that can stay around for multiple decades. You know, we saw that last time, uh, attempts to do that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens this time around. If you just, if you put, you just look at the situation today, these companies are raising money to buy uranium, not to build out the mine. So there's already, you know, this is sort of an intermediate phase where they've decided that, you know, there's, there's not, it's not possible to contract for, you know, for uranium supply. So they're able to raise money and they're just made a decision to buy uranium, not even put any of that equity into building out their operation. I think that's very telling. Uh, and you know, a lot of people just don't, you know, they're, they're saying it is, a, it is, a, if it's, it's a smart move. Yeah. If you can raise money and buy uranium, that's all, that's all great. But the economic determination is that you're better off doing that than, than doing any exploration work or, or starting to build out your, your production facility on, on Denison. I, as you know, Denison, if they are able to use uh, in situ recovery on their project, of course, they, that would be a game changer that you could access, a, you know, an ore body that such high, you know, high concentrations of such high ore grade through ISR, that would, that would certainly make them, I think they would be more competitive than the Kazakh. So we'll see. I mean, uh, wish them luck. Yeah, let's see what happens on that front. I mean, they do certainly have deep pockets in regards to finance and also technical capabilities given the Lundin group, as you know, does everything. I guess uranium you can exclude at this time, but certainly from oil and gas, copper, gold, etc., they've pretty much done it or know someone that can. So let's see what happens on that front. But you're right, it would be an interesting component and their CapEx again you know, depending on what project we're talking about, whether we're talking about Phoenix or Griffin, we'll see what they do there. It is interesting that the points about the physical uranium buying by the juniors, some of them, as you and I discussed before, we see that proper M&A of good, mineable, meaningful pounds that are in the ground, good projects that we know that we can actually permit commission and actually produce cake in a can. I think that is money best spent first and foremost, but you're right. I think that there's a number of companies that could buy a stock of uranium and provide you know, a 2x, 3x upside in the price, which is to me, a cash equivalent, and then also provide buffer for potential contracts if they get one to uh, get their project up and going. There's some good use to that. What's your thoughts on laser enrichment? Well, you know, Silex has, uh, I would, we looked at, uh, I, I evaluated the Silex uh, technology when we, we looked at, you know, evaluated whether it made sense to acquire a stake in that um, when it was when GE was selling their share for Silex, there was Ablis, which was also a laser technology. And they used to say about Ablis, you'll see Elvis before you see Ablis. <laughs> and I think, I, I don't know who you'd say, would, something similar with Silex. I, 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 
I don't think you ever the capex is is really significant, and the project that they're working on right now with enriching tails at the former uh, government enrichment site at, at Paducah, Kentucky. Um, it's like a two billion dollar investment, and it would produce somewhere in the order of ten million pounds of uranium. At a fairly, you know, if it, everything worked as planned, it would do it. Everything would be it would it would be a very low cost production. That's what Cameco is still in it and supporting that, you know, together with with Silex. I don't know they're spending between five and ten million a year to keep it going. Um, but I, I just think that the capex is, is too high, and I and I, I know they have challenges on scaling it to the level. And that project wouldn't just that would only be to produce uranium. That would be with a, a less complicated version of the enrichment equipment. So then on top of that, to really have it establish a standalone enrichment capability, they'd have to build another plant. So. Right now, it's just it's set up to really to mine DOE tails, but I, I would be I'm very skeptical that that will ever see the light of day. I, I just don't I don't see how they can how they can raise that two billion dollars. I have the same view. I think this is a long time out if it ever gets there. I guess along those lines, and I don't think it affects what we have before us today. But along those lines, you know, Gitzel's a board member over at Mosaic. You've seen attempts to extract uranium from phosphate. Any thoughts on that? You know, when I was at Newchem, we purchased uh, uranium from uh, Mosaic. There was also, a, I forgot the, the other company that was um, mining phosphate in the Louisiana area. We, we Go down, we, you know, it was a, a nice, uh, it was an op, a nice opportunity to go down and spend a couple of days in New Orleans, and then uh, go see Mosaic. Uh, they had, you know, Tampa. The issue there has always been environmental. Um, we tried to, when I was at Newcam, we were going to fund the um, the construction of a circuit that would process old um, phosphate tails at one of the um, Mosaic facilities in um, outside of Tampa, um, but we, you know, the project ran into. We we did a you know thorough uh, investigation and, and analysis of it, but really ran into environmental issues because um, you know they didn't you know these once once these tailing piles are there, it's fine, but once you disturb them, there's a concern that there's going to be new runoff and potential contamination. So I think that. That's the issue that that these phosphate producers are going to run into when it comes to uranium. All you have to do is mention, like, oh, you know, you're doing what? You're taking uranium out? We didn't know uranium was in it. <laughs> um, you know, people, you know, they're, they're putting fertilizer on their fields. They don't realize, realize they're also spreading uranium. The uh, phosphate, once this comes up, phosphate goes, wait, wait a second. Don't start, put, you know, that's really negative publicity that, you know, put uranium on your cornfield. Um, so I think that's really, I don't, I don't really see a big future. I know there was some, Morocco has some, you know, phosphate deposits that people looked into, but yeah, that falls under the category of extracting uranium from seawater. I mean, it's sort of, it, it worked back then. I think it's, I think the environmental <laughs> is challenging. 
No, you might need a few hundred bucks a pound to do that. You can throw bananas into it too, potassium and bananas. You can start to look at banana peels and, <laughs> and these types of things. <laughs> Let's move on for just a sec onto another subject here. Just as we start to wrap up here, I want to be respectful of your time, but it's been a good chat. We'll have to do it again. But the inventory buffer, I think this is a, an area where, where people are maybe wondering a little bit. Let's talk about U.S. and European utilities for a moment. What would you expect for them to stock on the shelves when they do start to recontract in a heavy fashion? You know, if you go back, you know, the volumes during that period from about 2004, 2005 to 2009, where there was pretty heavy volume contracted. Do you think that the utilities have changed that view? Do they go just in time with, especially with coming out of COVID here, we've seen what just in time could do to supply chains. Or do they look to actually recontract for four to five years ahead, like plenty of material to make sure the security of supply, certainty of supply? What's your thoughts? Well, it used to be traditionally that U.S. utilities would maintain you know, three-year forward inventory, Europeans five and Asian seven. And, you know, as a result, though, of, of you know, economic the pressures, on these utilities, especially the, the, the merchant plants that I mentioned earlier, that you know half of the current fleet of merchant plants, they're forced to to have more of a just-in-time inventory policy because they don't want to tie up cash. They've been able to manage that. Because, you know, this this is something that we, we call in this industry as a as a as a phrase a term called negative lead times. And what utilities were able to do, and, and they, they can still do it to an extent, is that they can lean on their um, fuel providers' inventories. So they can actually get delivery of fuel before they buy replacement. And that's because you have to look at the, the company that supplies, ultimately supplies fuel to a utility is the fabricator. It's an engineer product, and you have a fabricator like Westinghouse or GE or Arano, or in the case of um, you have uh, Rose Adam in Russia. Um, you know, the, these are the companies that provide the fuel assemblies that are in, installed in the reactor and produce the uh, energy. Those companies have been sitting on you know, significant inventories of enriched uranium. Like the Japanese inventories are large to a large extent and held in an enriched form, it's sitting at places like GE or Westinghouse or Arano, where they were going to have their fuel fabricated. Um, and other utilities that, that you know that also would have their you know, inventories there. So that that large inventories that have been, have been you know that these fabricators are sitting on, they use them to provide an incentive for utilities to contract with them when they go through the competitive bidding process. And they say, well, you know, we will essentially allow you to use our inventory. Um, and you don't, so you don't have to use your own. Uh, and I think that's been a, 
And that's, that's been something that's had a big impact on this market. It's, it's invisible to most observers. They don't even put it into their calculation, but um, to the extent that that changes, that those inventories start to dry up at the fabricator level, then it's going to, then could change, make it, it could result in a major change in, in the way, um, and in, in the level of inventory that utilities hold. And it could, you know, force them to go out and buy, you know, more uranium than they would have otherwise uh, purchased in, in the more recent past. Jim, that's a good point, and I hope the audience took note of what you said there. Additional information that uh, I think a lot of people have missed. And do you see these circumstances and these different conditions across the fuel cycle? Do you think that this looks like a situation where it's much worse than the last cycle? You know, the last cycle, uh, and I don't, what was happening prior to Fukushima to me was, was a, that was really a serious price development. You know, the prices got up above $70 then. And I, I think that was, a, that was a real number that was based upon market supply and demand and what you could, people could see coming uh, down the uh, pipeline. Um, the one time when it went up, 100, up to $130, a lot of that, it's interesting, we'll see what happens now. A lot of that was fueled by UPC. Um, when it came first came in the market, they were. Um, it was uh, I think I, I think it was Cormark Securities was the one that you know when, when Peter Groskopf and Jeff Kennedy were at Cormark, they, they are the ones who came up with the idea for UPC and um, they used uh, Newcam, which I was president of, to aggregate their inventories and, and so they you know their purchases um, because they needed to have a commitment um, before they went out and raised money. So we would, and they needed to have large volumes. So it, because they weren't gonna go out and raise you know, $5 million, they wanted you know, how to raise 20 to $50 million at a clip. So um, when they did that, it was, it was, no one had, you know, had seen anything like that. Um, that when they came out and started purchasing, it, it immediately tightened up the spot market and then, it was going up at a um, pretty rapid clip, up until $130. So, you know, go all the way to today, and 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 you see now this Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, which is taking over UPC. Peter Groskopf is still involved, and I think they've done a tremendous job, of, you know, setting up a vehicle that's much more efficient than UPC and professionalizing the management. So, you know, let's see. I mean. You know, if they go out and raise a half a billion dollars, um, I think the market's going to be expecting significant price increases. I'm sure that you that this, um, I mean, they, they're trying to buy uranium, I'm sure, at the lowest price possible. Uh, that's what their goal will be. But certainly um, the expectation in the market is going to be that they'll come in and um, sort of take out whatever you know, the spot market is very thin today, and as a result of all this producer per, uh, purchasing, um, Cameco still has quite a lot of buying to do. Um, and, uh, you know, somewhere around seven, eight million pounds. So if you put Cameco together with, as I say, the, the potential of the Sprott Trust, 
you know, you're bringing a lot of purchasing power into the market. And of course, you still have uh, Yellow Cake that also has the potential to raise money, um, as well as the number of other producers. So I think that's that's why I, you know there's a, there's a lot of reasons to feel optimistic that prices will um, would you know I, certainly there's uh, no reason for prices to go down, but and there's a lot of reasons for prices to go up. Yeah, I think that's the case. And Peter is still the lead guy over at Sprott. In this current market condition, I wouldn't be surprised that you should be able to raise a couple hundred million, no problem. And just in our experience in writing letters to a number of funds out there, companies that are not involved with uranium, some funds that are involved with natural resources, and then just some that are broad market hedge funds have no clue about this market at all, Jim. No clue. And these are folks that have billions, billions of dollars under management. It's still very early and it's a great setup for us folks that know the sector and have placed ourselves in the sector and continue to place ourselves day by day as the sector continues to move around here at what I call still splitting hairs uh, as far as the price levels for most of them. But you're right, it's going to be interesting to see what Sprott turns out here with this vehicle because this is a pretty powerful uh, setup that we have here. I want to switch just for one moment here before we wrap up the price reporters of this sector. Now, I, I know you know who they are. What do you think of them and their business? At Newcam, we we published the price. We had a price for, we, we, were, we were one of the major price uh, publishers. Um, it was us and a company called Nuexco, which became Trade Tech. We decided to abandon that uh, because we were a trading business and people were accusing us of conflict of interest. So we, we didn't, we, to avoid any litigation, we ended up um, selling our price report to um, Energy Intelligence, uh, which is their, their publisher. They don't it's not a one that people rely on, but they do publish a price and they do write a very uh, insightful report. But you have today, it's it's really UX, trade tech, and to, to, a, to a very large extent, it, the price is being determined by these brokerage firms, either Uranium Markets, Numerico, they're the ones who, who are providing the feedback to the publishers. You know, it used to be there was just a monthly price and then they started publishing a weekly price. And then it went out, it's a daily price. And in fact, more with, some, with Numerico, it's almost real time that you can get a quote. All, with all of the brokers, you can get pretty much get a, a, a quote any time during the day. So um, I, I think you know, the, th the thing is that the, there's very little liquidity in the market still. Uh, and a lot of this pricing could be is based on offers and bids that are not acted on. So that that's sort of just they're not in the case of trade tech, they'll they'll come up and they'll base their price on what they think is the price at time, where based upon what a bunch of sort of undetermined criteria, let's say. You know, that's like they, it's their it's their gut feeling of where the price is. And then UX is based on actual transactions or they look at the ab broker average price and that broker average price is 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 um, provided to them by a couple of brokers but and, and those prices are generated by not necessarily transactions by what 
they feel um, the offers that they're receiving and bids re that they're receiving, even if there's no transaction that results from those. So it it can, it can be in a thin market, they can it can be easily manipulated, uh, and I think that's happened a number of times. Um, and you know, at West Point, you know, people would get you know, there's obviously it, it generates a, a, a lot of. Uh, Bad feelings about that, you know, especially when when someone's pricing something at month end, uh, either 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 a delivery or a purchase. So um, there's, there's a lot of it's a it's a fairly complex question that you asked. There's a lot of dim, uh, dimensions to it. So um, there's no one answer to say yes, this is um, this price is is more realistic than the, the other price. It, it, the, the one that probably the UX publishes one that's sort of a, a monthly average price, uh, where they where they they've been averaging, Convertine with Cameco. So whereas Trade Tech was publishing a price based upon Cameco only, and um, it resulted in you know fairly large spread between um, deliveries at Cameco versus deliveries at Convertine, and I think that sort of eroded some confidence in in the price determination. You know, one of the things I think from an investor standpoint is folks are concerned about, you know, the reporting of price and, of course, the reporting of last long-term contract, et cetera. I just like to caution folks that, you know, just pay attention to the financials. I mean, that will come up eventually. Just be patient there and don't be too caught up in the day-to-day -day price or the week-to-week -week price. It's going to work out as we intended. You just got to be patient mostly and follow the key areas. Um a question from the audience here, uranium stocks have to some degree not been caught up too much in general market mania. You know, Jim, if you follow the markets as we do, a separate set of areas in the bribe market that have gotten a lot of attention, you know, tech stocks, cryptocurrency. You know, if people are willing to risk money in those sectors, highly speculative, probably not backed by anything. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Why has the uranium sector, the solid supply demand fundamentals, not caught much attraction yet? Well, I, I think a lot of these equities have gone up significantly. I mean, I mean, I look at your energy was trading at fifty-five cents. It's at a buck forty-five now, and um, Cameco was at eight. It's so it was getting close to you know nineteen twenty dollars. Um, I would say that. That's and that's in a fairly short period of time. So I, I think the, the sector has gotten a lot of attention, and with um, the spot trust uh, coming into the market, I'm sure it'll even get more. No, so that's not a bad return. You know, more than 130, 40 percent increases. And you're understating it too. I mean, if you look at uh, there's a number of other companies. I'll have to highlight the performance of Encore Energy, yeah. for example. Encore coming out of the gate two years ago. Roughly, I don't have my stuff in front of me, but Encore was a four or five cent stock. Now it's a dollar fifty north. There's a lot of stocks in this sector that have done count COVID lows. You know, a lot of these stocks have done five to uh, eight hundred, no problem percent. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm just talking about the ones that are, you know, established. You know, I mean, right. UE, UEC Energy Fuels. I mean. What's energy fuels market cap? I mean, I, it must have tripled or quadrupled. Um, and look at Centris. My God, Centris was trading at four bucks. It's uh, you know regularly between twenty and twenty-five dollars. 
Um, right. I mean, this is pretty, you know, I, I, like you said, I, if you missed it, then, um, but there's still more down the road. So, but it's certainly been, they've done quite well. Yeah, I don't think anybody's missed it here. I think this is a very small sector and there's a lot of room to run. Jim, I suspect, uh, maybe just confirm for the audience, my suspicion is you have uh, some portfolio of exposure to uranium. Oh, I do. I think it's, uh, I've had, have had exposure for, you know, many years. Um, I, I, that's why I would, I'm saying I'm very happy with the benefits of this, um, you know, market turnaround. Um, it's sort of icing on the cake for me. Well, Jim, let's wrap up here. We've taken a lot of your time. Really appreciate you hanging in here. For parties that are listening that want to get in touch with you or for those that are looking for services such as advice from you or trading services from Traxxas, given your relationship with them, what do you offer and how can they reach out to you? Well, in respect to um, Traxxas, you know, we, um, over time, we've been, we've managed accounts for a number of hedge funds. We are at a, at a fairly nominal cost. We will, you know, manage accounts and do and, and and hold inventories for companies that really don't want any visibility, and we'll you know buy and sell it uh, based upon their instructions. We're, we've we've also done a lot of banking for uranium producers. We can provide financing. Cases we can provide marketing uh, and, and sales and, and logistics support. And um, your energy, we we basically um, standing ready to address any utility uranium requirements, be that here in the U.S. or around the, the globe. So your energy is on standby. They um, are. Fully permitted, they would take. They they're, they're a legitimate low-cost producer. They've proven that their results uh, you know, have been audited. So you know, those operating costs are not just something that um, basing on some consultant's report. They're actually well you know well established, and um, they're licensed to produce up to you know two million pounds plus. They can process and another 2 million if, if that's available to them from other production uh, out, outside of their operation. So, you know, you're talking about production capability between 2 and 4 million pounds at cash costs, uh, you know, somewhere between um, 10 and $15 a pound. Probably could be even lower if those uh, volumes are, would be reached. So, I mean, both companies are, you know, well positioned to, you know, take advantage of this, the, the recovery in the uranium market and in the nuclear market in general. And my email is jcornell at nucorenergy.com. Be happy to, uh, and if people just want to call up and chat, I welcome uh, any type of inquiry. Jim, I appreciate that. And, and this has been really insightful. I think our audience are going to like it. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time with us and let's do it again sometime. Well, thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate it. You did a, a really, you're a great interviewer.